Hey everyone, Colin here. I uh, just wanted to let you know that this is, of course, part two of our discussion on non-bending combatants with Marilyn from Beyond Bending Podcast. Uh, again, uh, make sure you stay to the end to uh, learn more about her podcast and uh, appreciate you guys tuning in and listening and uh, enjoy the episode. Thanks. So I, I want to I keep things moving and move on to uh, the character that I admittedly almost forgot off this list. And I, I geez, I feel so bad. But, Gosh, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that is Suki. Um, and obviously Suki is one of like the earliest additional characters that we meet in the show um, who becomes a recurring character. Um, we, of course, meet her in The Warriors of Kyoshi. And then uh, comes back in the Serpent's Pass. And then, uh, of course, again, we see her uh, um, Day of Black Sun. And then, or actually, no, we don't see her in Day of Black Sun. I'm sorry. Uh, We see her next at the Boiling Rock. And again, we're talking about like this idea of these non-benders and the growth that they experience as characters and the competency that they have. Clearly, when we see Suki in the beginning, she's a competent fighter. She's the leader of the Kyoshi Warriors. Um, she's incredibly adept with, you know, her fans, with her shield, and like hand-to-hand combat. Um, and then, of course, you know, she goes toe-to-toe with Azula, which we <laughs> realize that does not end well um, because clearly she ends up in the boiling rock. Um, but then she has that wonderful breakout scene in the boiling rock where she is just taking down everyone. She's parkouring and climbing everywhere <laughs> and just like picks up the warden. It's just like, Oh my God. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just going to say, cause I know in your podcast, you're working your way through the series. So you like pretty recently did, or at least, you know, you did uh warriors of Kyoshi. I don't know. What was that like for you kind of, revisiting that character especially knowing like where she ends up in the kind of growth that she goes on oh man i fucking love suki so much (laughs) (laughs) i don't i don't know if this is okay but i'm gonna mention another podcast potterless have you heard of um potterless i haven't no oh well it's a it's a tale of a 26 year old man reading harry potter for the first time and so um mike the (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's really interesting, um, like, approaching the Harry Potter series as an adult. Um, Mike's favorite character is Charlie Weasley, and he complains about it all the time because um, Charlie Weasley's character isn't really fleshed out, but on the surface level, he's, like, the most interesting character, like, the coolest character, Mm. hands down, or the coolest Weasley, and yet, like, we don't really know that much about him. And I think the same applies to me and Suki, because on the surface level, Suki is, like, fucking amazing. She's 
she's brilliant, she's a leader, she's able to, like, her combat skills alone, um, you don't really know that much about her other than, like, her role in the plot or how she benefits from, or how Sokka benefits from knowing her. Suki's character in personality alone, what I love about her so much is that she's so secure in in the role that she's playing. Like, she's, mm. like, a. I don't know if she's a natural-born leader, but you get a sense of, like, when you first meet her, she she's the one dictating everything. Like, um, what is it? The, the man in Kiyoshi Island, Oyaji, like, even though he... You think he's the leader? It's actually Suki that's yeah. the leader of that whole <laughs> village. And um and she's the one in authority. She's the one she this fourteen year old girl is like the police force of this island. Like can you imagine like a fourteen year old girl running around <laughs> your city giving you like parking tickets, like pulling you over <laughs> and being like, Hey, you drove too fast and you can't like like, just try to challenge her. She will fucking whip your ass. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, that's what I was saying. It's like, if I found myself in the position where, like, Suki did pull me over, and of course she'd probably be, like, riding a bicycle because she, you know, can't, like, be in a car, I would still be, like, terrified to, like, even, like, disrespect in the, like, the slightest. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I fucking love Suki. I fucking love Suki so much. She reminds me of, like, the captain of a sports team and and you're just you're on her team and like you will always count on her to be there for you to guide you to you know to help you along the way um and she's so loyal like appa's lost days oh my gosh oh my gosh (laughs) oh gosh (laughs) the feels anytime i think about appa's lost days I it just like an immense well of sadness just like just starts bubbling within me and it's just like Appa <laughs> no but yes yeah. she is like she is she like her dedication and like trying to help him out through that is like oh gosh it's the best and you just see like the deep 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 sense of empathy and like loyalty and love that she has as a character even though it's such a short part of that episode as a whole. Yeah, and then you also kind of see, um, it's not really explored, but you kind of see, like, her pettiness and her mm. her ego, especially when, um, in Warriors of Kyoshi, when she's, like, demonstrating with Sokka, and Sokka finally managed to best her, and her ego balloon just pops, and you see her, like... <laughs> Totally getting defensive and saying to Sokka, like, oh, I let you have that one. And it's just so funny. It's like, oh, my God, poor Suki. (laughs) Like, she's, and it's so great. Like, she's been, she's always been the best in, in any scenario. And when she is challenged by, um, and bested by Sokka, like, you kind of see her, like, her, um, insecurities kind of play out. And, um... Like, they don't explore that anymore, but... Um, but it's but part yeah. of her growth, too. And I mean, I think it's, again, it's like this idea with, you know, as Sokka, when he left the Water Tribe, he was not, you know, he was flinging a boomerang that he was hoping would come back in the right way. And, you know, Suki was the best fighter on her island, but it's her island. And 
then I think that's what's so awesome about her wanting to go and help with like the refugees and the relief effort, like for the uh, like where like the boat ride is uh, going into Bossing Say, um, you know, because she she is wanting to kind of like push and challenge herself more. And I think like taking that moment of being like, okay, I did lose my cool. I got defensive and I like, <laughs> I kind of got bested by this guy who just came in and trained with me for like one day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think it's this idea of like, she wanted to try to get better and understanding that she needed to see more of the world and not just her Island. Yeah. Oh my gosh. When, um, when she tells the gang, when they, um, when they do meet at that, underground railroad she worked for the underground railroad yes and said that (laughs) (laughs) and said that the gang inspired her to leave um her little island to save the world to help save the world and i think that's just so admirable and honorable it's like this little 14 year old cop joining the military and and being like the the most badass um marine ever (laughs) she's a super cop (laughs) Yeah, she's a super cop. <laughs> so, uh, again, uh, you know, because I, I want to keep us on track and, uh, Sorry. and still. Oh, no, 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 no. I just I want to make sure we can get to all of the points that we want to get to. This has all been fantastic, by the way. I'm having a blast. I hope you're <laughs> having fun with this as well. Yeah, no. Yeah, this is amazing. <laughs> Thank you, Colin. <laughs> cool. Uh, so I want to move on to um, Jet and the Freedom Fighters. Uh, oh, gosh. I, I, I bundled all of them in together because, you know, I, I think it's all coming from the same point. I think we can kind of focus a little bit more on Jet and briefly just kind of mention Smeller being Longshot. But uh, Jet especially because, I mean, in I, I think it's, uh, it's interesting because that was like one of the most frequently aired episodes that Nickelodeon did to bring people into the fold for Avatar. Because I remember mm. growing up like... whenever there was i saw like oh man i pull up the guide on the tv and it's like oh avatar's on it's like oh it's jet again it's like i love that episode but it was always that episode that was like coming on it was either that or bato of the water tribe (laughs) (laughs) um but you know it, it was cool because again we get to see the bending and we get to see jet with like uh so it I want to focus a little bit on like his weapons. He uses uh, what are known as uh, tiger hook swords. Um, and just the way that he uses those swords across the series is pretty phenomenal. Um, and insane with how competent he is as a fighter and how, how much he can go toe to toe with everyone that he faces. Um, I mean, first of course, Ang, who's an airbender who is able to just like, dash around and do all kinds of crazy stuff like jet is still holding his own against him when they fight and the fact that he is able to move within these trees and uh be able to adaptively change up styles based on like ang's attacks and evasions and everything it shows that like jet truly is a product of a world where bending has become too entirely oppressive and he has had to fight his way back as someone who does not have that type of power. Um, I think he's just like the quintessential example of it in this series, at least. Um, and I mean, it's, it's all part of like the whole conflict of that episode of him being like the firebenders took everything away. 
the fire, like fire nation did this firebender took this. And it's like, he has such a hatred because of all he sees in his mind. When he flashes back to that as a kid, it's a burning village. It's fire. And it's this idea that it's something he cannot even really fight against. And I don't know. What was it like for you to kind of, uh, um, I don't know, think about Jed as a character in terms of like him being this non-bending combatant in his his role in the series. Oh gosh, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it was like a loaded question. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just saying like I think for every um for every for every female that um that are attracted to men, I think Jet is the quintessential like typical Sorry for cussing on your podcast, but like a typical <laughs> fuckboy and like the the epitome of the ex-boyfriend you want to forget. That's so manipulative. And so like Jet is a cult leader. Like if you look at the <laughs> so true. He is a cult leader. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. If you look at the traits of a cult leader, Jet is all of that. And you see how he manipulates Katara. And like I personally as like, like I'm bisexual and I'm married and <laughs> like with um, my husband, like we've been dating since high school. Mm. But, but Jet is, oh, okay, hold on. Let me, let me um, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you're, you're so right though. I mean, he is just that like, you hate him, but like, how can you not love him? And it's just like, that's such a good point though because like again that quintessential like cult leader like tactic is to include someone and then ostracize them from like their group that they were a part of which is exactly what he does with like Aang and Katara because he's just like Sokka is the real enemy here I am the person you should be believing and like they fall for it they totally <laughs> drank the flavor aid <laughs> yes and he's like the um the stereotype of the damaged hot man mm. in any tv show where it's like i'm damaged fix me like same with zuko <laughs> like oh i'm damaged fall for me like uh. <laughs> and it's so and it's so crazy because like we t uh, going back to weapons and jets tiger hook swords it reflects his personality because like once he hooks you you're in danger. He mm. has you at his mercy. And it it's up to you to break out of that or else you're screwed. Like, it's it's honestly up to you. Jet will not show you mercy. He won't let you go. Like, same in, like, a relationship. Like, if, uh, I don't know, like, people that ship Katara and Jet. I don't know why, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, I don't know. And, I mean, that that's such a good point, too, about his swords. And, again, it's this idea that, like, those little details are things that, you know, again, we would think, oh, okay, that's just like a cool choice. But Mike and Brian make such intentional decisions with these details because they understand that there is like a greater layer. Um, there's a greater potential for adding layers to a character um, and for us to interpret them and for them to be represented in the world that they can use. And I mean, it just, it's great. I mean, I, just from like, uh, 
like a combat standpoint i just like when he does that technique where he like loops one sword in with the other and starts like swinging it it well it like for one it kind of reminds me of like when you're fighting if anyone's played if you've played like breath of the wild when like anytime like those like bokoblins are like swinging their spears at you you're like oh my god this is like getting closer and closer to me and it's just like it's so (laughs) cool but it's so terrifying at the same time (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah and then it does reflect like how he when he does manipulate people he uses their fear to an advantage he Mm. he waits until like the person is at their lowest point and then he strikes and it's oh man yeah i I hate jet (laughs) (laughs) so you know again we have the other freedom fighters i just kind of want to briefly touch on um we have smeller b who uses a sword and knife and we have uh, Longshot, who uses a bow and arrow. Um, and then, of course, Sneers also uses, like, a wooden log, which I thought was hilarious when I was, like, <laughs> looking back at that. And, you know, it's this, I mean, they're representative of more traditional, like, weapons. Um, these are something that you would normally see with kind of like freedom fighter or mercenary type figures. you got to have your archer. you got to have your close combat person. You got to have, you know, like your berserker <laughs> or your heavy who's <laughs> coming in with like a giant tree log. <laughs> and, you know, it's this idea of like, you know, Jet brought people around him. He was building his party. He was building his D&D party. It was like, okay, I need range. I need close combat. I need a tank. All right, let's bring everybody in together because if you're going to fight a dragon or you're going to fight a mage or a wizard or whatever, you got to come in with a balanced party because you got to come in with like all these different options. And I feel like that that is what Jet and the Freedom Fighters really represent is that they are combating forces that are (laughs) more than a traditional fighter could handle independently. So it's this idea of like, okay, strength in numbers and then strength in different types of weapons so that we're not just all shooting arrows at them because a firebender could just unleash a huge wave of fire and burn all the arrows. Or, you know, if we're all just coming at them with swords, you know, an earthbender could like block us away or something like that. But when you're going at a foe from different angles and we see this with like when they ambush that camp how handily they deal with everyone and like how that teamwork and all the different like techniques that are coming into play it's just a well-oiled machine it's like the ewoks (laughs) (laughs) no abigail that was amazing She's overplaying Breath of the Wild, and that oh. <laughs> they are like the Ewoks. That's hilarious. Oh my god. You're welcome. Oh my gosh. Well, especially sneers with that like log because it's like that's like straight up like smashing into the, like the ATST. <laughs> but you know, again, it's that idea of like they have to be a well-oiled machine in order to face these foes who would have such a leg up on them. Because that's the type of world that they live in. Yeah, and um, what's um, what's the other one? The one with the bow and arrow. Long shot. Long shot. Yeah, it does. Now, on the topic of how everyone's choice of weapon reflects their personality, 
I it just occurred to me like Longshot's choice of weapon is a bow and arrow. So he strikes from far away, like he puts that distance between him and his foe. And I would kind of say he does the same in his personality too. Like he doesn't talk, which mm. is like he doesn't converse with his friends, and that's like the biggest distance barrier. And so ah, uh, oh man. But he speaks with actions and through what he doesn't do. Which I think yeah. is also representative of like a bow and arrow. It's just like, you know, you can fire a warning shot. And if you're precise enough, you fire that next to someone. That's all you need to say. There's nothing <laughs> else that needs to be said. It's just like that was that close to your face. I clearly could have hit you if I wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then with Smeller be like small and deadly and <laughs> like once once she's Oh, we, when we find out she's a girl. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> um, good job, Nickelodeon, for yes. being gender fluid. Yes. <laughs> Smeller B was so done with that. Just like, come on, get on my level here. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about D&D and comparing the Freedom Fighters to that. I was thinking about Robin Hood. And this mm. is like a really evil version of Robin Hood where Jet is um like I like what you said, they have to they work well as a team and Jet honestly wouldn't be able to do what he does like a cult leader. Like you in order for you to be able to achieve what you want, like you need those numbers. And so, um oh man. But it's yeah. so hard to watch Jet manipulate the Freedom Fighters into following him because they're all so vulnerable. And he, and like Robin Hood, he, he like makes them feel loved and feel part of a team in this newfound family. And it just goes to show like, um, the opposite of Suki. Like, what happens when you have a bad leader? Mm. Like, are you bad in yourself? Like, are, mm-hmm. Ugh. Yeah, I I feel like the, like Robin Hood's a very a very spot on analogy. I would say Robin Hood sprinkled in with like a little bit of like Peter Pan and like the Lost Boys, yes. you know, because like it, it, which is so funny because you think of just like you know you just imagine like Dante Bosco just shows up there, it's Rufio, Rufio, Rufio. <laughs> <laughs> Like, go back to playing Zuko, Dante. <laughs> we still love you as Rufio, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, w- with that, I want to kind of move on to um, uh, the next kind of specialist in our list. And we kind of briefly touched on him. Um, and that is Pian Dao, who is Sokka's master uh, from the uh, third season, who only shows up again, only twice. Uh, in Sokka's Master and then in the Old Masters slash kind of series finale. Um, in, of course, he's a member of the White Lotus. He lives in the Fire Nation and clearly is someone who is immensely skilled, a worldly individual, and also just, I don't know. It, it, it's re- I love the way that they kind of like did the twist of Sokka confessing that he was like water tribe and this idea that like Pian Dao was going to be mad about him, even though so much of like the philosophy and the ideas that Pian Dao was presenting throughout that episode were of 
someone who wasn't of a narrow frame of mind. And I think it's a testament to his success and his abilities as a sword fighter is this idea of him keeping an open mind, imagining the possibilities, and being able to see the whole picture. Because he even talks about that in his lessons with Sokka. It's like you have to survey the battlefield. Every stroke of the brush is like a swing of the sword. And understanding and seeing that whole picture for everything is, again, it's like he is someone who has existed in this world for a while, but he's living in the Fire Nation, but he's a part of the White Lotus. So I don't know. Uh, what what are some of your thoughts on uh, Pian Dao and kind of his role in the series um, and how they kind of brought him in? Uh, well, he reminds me a lot of Mr. Miyagi, mm. in a sense, where, um, like, because daniel Son approaches Mr. Miyagi and is like, hey, like, I want you to teach me. And Mr. Miyagi doesn't know the whole picture. He doesn't know that Daniel's being bullied, like, he wants to be able to fight back. And so he's teaching him all these, all of these things. And, um, and then it is revealed that Daniel does, like, use karate to fight back. And Mr. Miyagi, like, disowns him and mm. is mad at him but it's not later when he realizes that like he he tells daniel like okay you can fight back but only to end all the fighting to put a stop to all the fighting mm. and i feel like you can see that in pian dao too like he doesn't I, I don't even think he was mad that Sokka lied to him about being in the water tribe like i don't think he's racist (laughs) um maybe that like um maybe he did feel a little betrayed but towards the end he he does i think he realized that it surpasses like this this technique that he he passed on to Sokka um surpasses all nations and it is to like Sokka does use these skills to end the war Mm. and so um I see that parallel with like the Karate Kid movie and mm. Pian Dao's relationship with Sokka. Well, it's cool that you bring that up too because um, Pian Dao was actually, he was uh, modeled, uh, his character model and like so much of the inspiration, he was kind of an homage to uh, Sifu Kisu, who was the martial arts advisor uh, for the show. Um, right. And I mean, it's so much of like, I, I don't know if you've ever like seen any of the videos of like him at, you know, any of the panels or anything or like comic cons, like he is always like so incredibly enthusiastic to share that knowledge and to just like relish in like this, just how awesome martial arts are. And the fact that he has been able to, you know, help advise on this show. And I, we were saying this uh, on an earlier episode that if Mike and Brian, I sincerely hope that they bring him on for the live series as a martial arts advisor, because <laughs> it would be such a such a good call. Because I mean, he's the one who helped craft it for this one. But yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that that is a whole rabbit hole. I just I, I had to throw that out there. <laughs> oh no, you mentioned Netflix. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so you know, again, Piandao. He is this incredible sword fighter, has, 
kind of existed in this world and is part of the White Lotus and is seemingly what we have seen is the non-bending representative of the White Lotus, um, at least like for these Grand Masters. And it's this idea of like when they retake Ba Sing Se, it is Paku, Bumi, Zhang Zhang, Iroh, and Pian Dao working together. And they are all just these masters. And they are all on an equal level entering the city together. And I think that's, again, it's it's so important to have that representation to show. It's like, yeah, we have these incredibly gifted individuals who can bend the elements, but there are also individuals in this world that can do insane things with the sword. And, oh, God, when they go over that wall and uh, Paku makes that, like, frozen, like, waterfall and, like, Pian Dao, like, digs his sword in and, like, skates in, like, down the slope and everything. Oh, my God, it's such a badass move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's, like, honestly, it it's not surprising because for Pian Dao to be a part of the White Lotus, I feel like like that was a given. Like, you see, when it is revealed who is who are members of the White Lotus, and you see Pian Dao there, in your mind, you're just like, yeah, like, that fits. Mm, mm-hmm. Like, he he represents everything a White Lotus member should represent. And it is, like, what you said. Like, he's able to go toe-to-toe with, with benders. What I... What is more... Um, like, I feel like Pian Dao definitely belongs in the White Lotus more than Paku. Is that his name? Yes. Yeah, because Paku is like a straight up misogynist. Yeah. <laughs> who I who I have a problem with to this day because mm. I kid you not, I rewatched the episode and he does not make the switch until he realizes that the love of his life is Katara's grandma. And then he starts acting sweet. And I'm like, no, yeah. don't you fucking do that to me. Are you <laughs> kidding me, Nickelodeon? He is still, like, deep down, he is still a misogynist. Mm. And it is, like, that um, that family tie to the love of his life that makes him redeemable. Mm. I, yeah, Pian Dao definitely deserves to be on the White Lotus. Paku, on the other hand, is still questionable in my eyes. <laughs> they were probably like, they're like, all right, we got to get someone from the Water Tribes. It's like, <laughs> this guy's not a great bender. This guy's a great bender, but like, he's a raging misogynist. It's like, oh, God. As long as, like, you know, we don't let him talk at meetings, like, I guess that'll work. <laughs> <laughs> he's, uh. he's the one that always, like, vetoes, um, like the applications of female oh White Lotus God. members. <laughs> Seriously, Paku? Come on. Come on, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Their uh, emotions will get in the way. Shut oh up, Paku. Get out of here. <laughs> uh, so I want to move on to uh, kind of the last of our specialists. And uh, this was uh, one that you actually brought up. And I was really thrilled that you did um, because I wouldn't technically label them as combatants, but I still think that as non-benders, their role in combat, I think, is still uh, very, like, very fitting to our discussion. And that is Teo and his father, the inventor. 
Um, so yes. I, I, yeah, I want I, like why don't you kind of take it away with like what uh, why you kind of wanted to bring them into this discussion and uh, some of your thoughts. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so um, when you mentioned to me the topic of this episode as um, non-benders, I um, I thought about all of the people that made an impression on me on the show that were non-benders. And the biggest one was the inventor of all of the Fire Nation equipment and Tao's dad. Like he, he literally is the father of the atomic bomb, <laughs> essentially, yeah. like in this show. Like he, you see him and his brilliant mind and, and how he, oh, there's this great line where, um, it's when Aang and, and all of them go back to the Northern Air Temple, and Aang is just so offended by um, by the mistreatment of the sacred temple, and all of the um, all of the gadgets and all of the pipes that Tail's dad drilled into, and he straight up like blows up, I think, a monk statue in the oh, head. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> That's so the, brutal. St- the statue head just rolls onto Aang's feet, and he's like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" And, <laughs> and um, and he's like, "Why would you do this? Like, why are you being so insensitive right now?" And then Teo's dad, like, he's just not faced by it at all, and then he's just like, "Well, you know, like, my son is is um handicapped, and so I wanted to help him." Um, ah, pulling that old card, eh, inventor? <laughs> That's how I felt. It's just like convenient excuse. <laughs> yeah, and there's this um, there's this great quote that um, I'm gonna read, and then he says, he says, "We're just in the process of improving what's already here, and after all, isn't that what nature does?" And then um, Aang is like, no, nature knows when to stop. And it just resonated with me so much because I was thinking about, um, about like Robert Oppenheimer, like the father of the atomic bomb and how his invention shaped the world as we know it, but also brought a lot of death to the world. And and Teo's dad like mirrors that. Like he built all of these things for the Fire Nation that brought so much death. But the show wrote it so that like he was basically cornered into a wall and and was forced to do that to offer his services um to offer his services for the Fire Nation to protect his son. And and in a sense that is like a valid excuse, but you see Teo, he's just so disgraced by what his father has done it Mm. it's not till later where um the inventor redeems himself and it's so great watching that episode because um you see Sokka kind of like bouncing off of the inventor's energy like both of them like when they're um when they're trying to pinpoint where the the gas leak is coming from you see um this energy in Sokka where he's like, oh my God, like this is another non-bender that's like super intelligent. And like with Katara in season one, episode six, Imprisoned, Katara kind of looks at her dad like an older version of herself. And that's like the reason why she's so um, disturbed by the thought of these earthbenders not doing anything, not fighting up 
against the Fire Nation and trying to break out. And so I see Sokka looking at Teo's dad, the inventor, like, oh, this is what I can aspire to be, this intelligent mm. man. And then you see later, like, Sokka found the gas leak, and both of them just um, decide to... I mean, it, it was Sokka's idea to... Um, well, he was the one who designed the subs that they used to for, like, the... Uh, invasion of the day of black sun too yeah and i mean it's i i love that you brought that up too because i mean yeah that that like the energy that's kind of going between them and like how excited Sokka is to kind of share that is again it's it's incredible because so much of the way benders view the world is through this lens of what can i do with my bending to change the world but for someone who doesn't have bending, they can either take a position, they can take, they can view it as how am I just going to deal with benders in this world? How am I going to survive? Or you can say, how am I going to shape the world with a perspective that these benders do not have? And that is one of someone who does not have these abilities, who has to like work harder for certain things that benders frankly take for granted. And I think that that's where that comes out with like Sokka's enthusiasm with the inventor is like, this is a guy who is like, he doesn't need firebending to like make these like pipes run and everything. He's like figured out how to harness the heat and like, you know, pipe it through and do all of this stuff. Like this is, this is someone who is circumventing what normally bending would just like easily fix and i love that like Sokka just gets so excited about that um but i i also love that you brought up the comparison between the inventor and Oppenheimer too because it is this idea of like even though he like kind of redeems himself later it's this idea of like he already sets the world on this trajectory and there's kind of no turning back from it because he is this like catalyst for technological innovation and change. And on one end, it's really cool because we get to see obviously like what happens 70 years later in like Legend of Korra and like all of the stuff that like kind of comes from this technological revolution. But then we also see like the downsides of it too and like the incredible destruction and everything just within Avatar The Last Airbender with the airships and what the Fire Nation comes up with. Um, and it's this idea of like, just because someone can't bend doesn't mean that they have the potential to be the catalyst for immense amounts of destruction and change. Yeah. And then, um, it's funny you bring up Korra because I was just thinking like comparing to, um, say Avatar The Last Airbender is World War II. Mm. You see all of these non-benders play a huge role in the society of the series. Like all of these non-members, you got you got like Grand Grand, that's like the head of the Southern Water Tribe. Like like if I'm gonna quote Big Sean, like my grandma just died, I'm the man of the house. Like that's so true. And <laughs> like nice. the gram the grandma is usually like the the head the head holder in a family and then you see you see all of these non-benders and they all have a role to play in avatar the last airbender 
And it reminds me of in World War II how like all the men went to war and the women took over at home, like and took over the roles of like filled in the jobs that were left behind. And you could say you can kind of say the same for for this show. Like all of the all of the benders left or are busy fighting against the firebenders and it's the non-benders that have to like fill in mm. the empty roles left behind by them and so you see like the benders and the non-benders like they're treated as equals like they all they all have an important part to play in this war and it's not until legend of korra where like very similar to after world war ii like the men came back wanted their jobs back and put the women back at home and the women are were just like like why what do i do i yeah. learned all of these skills you're gonna just like suppress me again like that and so there was like this in the 50s there was this like um gender identity crisis with women like like for a long time they had a purpose in society and that was taken away from them. And then you see that in Korra too. I felt like the non-benders, like before, um, during Aang's time, they had a role. And it's not until later where um, all of these benders got jobs. Like Mako works at the electricity company, and, you know, like supplies electricity throughout the whole city. Mm. And non-benders felt useless. And so I just thought of that when thinking about the show and how it applies to like art history in society. Hmm. That's a really, I, I, I really, I never thought about it that way, but that, that's such a great connection and point because, you know, war has a way of making equality kind of more accessible because it's something that is like needed in the moment because when it's, like when you're fighting someone, you don't have time to be divided because you're not going to be able to defeat your enemy if you're trying to fight within like your own ranks. But it's this idea of like once that kind of feeling of like, okay, we're all on the same team. We achieved our goal. How do you deal with that fallout? Um, that's that's such a great point. That was awesome. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I think with that, uh, we're just going to kind of like wrap things up. But, you know, on our show, we like to kind of do like what I, just like basically final thoughts, um, revisiting all of this idea of like these non-benders. And now that we've kind of had this like time of discussion, what are some new insights that you feel like you have now that you didn't before? May, Tylee, and Azula are Ozai's angels and the Powerpuff Girls. Yes. <laughs> um, Sokka's amazing and <laughs> and um, Pian Dao is definitely Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> oh, I did want to bring up something with Teo. And this was when um, Aang was like really uh, bitter about seeing non-benders fly. Oh, and I think it's so great because um, he's like, uh, Teo and Aang kind of have that like tete-a-tete in the air where they're challenging each other. And Teo kind of holds his own against Aang 
in terms of like um, being impressive in the air. And it's later when Teo teaches Katara how to glide. And there's this great line where Teo says, like, don't worry, the wind will carry you. Um, it supports something inside you, something even lighter than air. And that something just takes over when you fly. And, um, and then Aang chimes in and he's like, spirit, you're talking about spirit. And, um, and Teo's like, yeah, exactly. Like, and it's just so powerful. Like, even Teo couldn't put it into words. But in non-benders, all that matters is spirit. Like, that's what carries them to do what they do. That's what gives them the drive to be able to go toe-to-toe with benders. And you see that in Korra, where they open up the spirit world, and some non-benders turn into airbenders. And so that that is, like... Like, there are no lines in this, in this show. And it's really amazing how, like, when you think that, um, some things can't be accomplished, when you think that, like, um, that the creators make these rules and then break it, and they just, they always blow your mind. And it's, it's so amazing to watch. No, that that was that was great. I love I, I love that point about the idea of like that that sense of spirit because I think that that is present in all the characters that we talked about tonight. Um, I mean, because they there has to be something else there for them to honestly keep pushing against this world that is stacked against them in terms of combat because even the simplest firebender can do something incredibly destructive that someone would have to work or very hard to do or be very crafty and learn how to do themselves. And, you know, it's so great that Mike and Brian created this world that had such strong characters that were not benders because it balances it out. If you just had these non-benders in completely kind of subjugated roles, then it just, it kind of, you run into the issue of like what happens like with superheroes is that if superheroes are running around and they have these incredible powers, suddenly all the people around them that do not have powers are just kind of victims of those consequences of their actions. And, you know, maybe they can have a moment where they help the superheroes or something like that. But it, it the fact that we have these strong, competent fighters and individuals who are representing this part of the population that has not been gifted with these abilities just goes to show that, like, at the very end of the day, they're all human. And they all have this capability to do incredible things. And they're all capable of great good or great evil at the hands of whatever their abilities are. And that's like one of my favorite like lessons from Avatar in general, from that Avatar and the Fire Lord episode in season three. Like, uh, I think that just like encapsulates so much of <laughs> this whole show in its entirety. <laughs> but I mean... Uh, 
I don't know. Just as a whole, I I love these non-bending characters, and I'm so glad we got to do a deep dive of this. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I I really appreciate you joining me tonight for this discussion, and just hopping on the podcast here, and just like kind of, uh, you know, proposing this idea for a podcast like Host Exchange. This was so much fun having you here. I just love geeking out with anyone who is like a huge <laughs> Avatar fan. There's always that shared language and like appreciation and adoration that comes in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you, Colin. Yeah, this was really fun. I Sorry if I went on tangents. Um, I do really hate Jet, but I really love Suki, so it balanced <laughs> out. <laughs> uh. So uh, just kind of before we go, um, can you just tell the listeners uh, how to find your podcast and like some of your social media information? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I'm the host and editor of Beyond Bending Podcast, a show about a bunch of millennials analyzing Avatar, The Last Airbender. Uh, we go episode by episode. And I was really inspired to create the podcast after the announcement of Netflix and then with Spotify now um releasing podcasts on their stream i was like you know this is a good time i'm gonna put my film degree to work um (laughs) (laughs) analyzing my favorite show of all time and it just still baffles me how people overlook this show like there's a reason why it's so loved like even on um what is it imdb's top tv shows ranked by women I think Avatar The Last Airbender is, like, number 13. Wow. Like it's re- yeah, it's really high up there. Like, there's a reason why this show is so loved, and so I just wanted to explore that. Um, you can find us on all of the s- streaming services, uh, Spotify, uh, iTunes, Podcast, and um, and also on our website at beyondbending.com. Cool. And then uh, people can find you on like Instagram and Twitter and stuff just at Beyond Bending. Yeah. Um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all of all of the good stuff. Uh, Beyond Bending or Beyond Bending podcast. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, again, Marilyn, thank you so much for uh, joining me tonight. And again, uh, for listeners, thank you so much for listening in. Um, remember, you can find us uh, on Twitter at Portalcast Pod. Uh, you find us on Instagram and Facebook at Legend of Portalcast. Our website at legendofportalcast.com. Check us out on iTunes as well. Feel free to leave a rating and review if you'd like. Uh, any feedback, of course, is always appreciated. And uh, until next time, um, let us leave. <laughs> Flamey Hotman. <laughs>